Hello and welcome to Reading Between the Lines, the story podcast from the People's Friend in association with the Oddfellows. Each episode, a few of us from the Friend team delve into our archives to find a story to read and then sit down for a wee chat about it. So, make yourself a cuppa, pull up a chair and come join us. This episode, we're reading Love's Ambassador by Ida May. First published May 29th, 1920. Reading the story is Marion from the Features team. Over to Marion. Lorette Wayne pulled the ends of ribbon into fringe fixed it on the brim of the hat she was trimming, and then fixed her expressive eyes on the girl who sat fidgeting with a skein of cotton opposite. "'What did you come to see me for, Elsie?' she asked. Elsie Foster, her friend and office companion, flushed. "'How did you know I came to see you about anything particular?' she asked. "'Well, my dear, when a friend calls, ostensibly to wish me a pleasant holiday,' and after muttering a few vague remarks about the weather, sits there saying nothing and getting my cotton into a mess, I begin to wonder. Elsie sat the cotton down hastily. Dick's going to Margate today, she said abruptly. Ah, murmured Lorette, beginning to stitch. Edna Spence told me, Dick told her brother, he's staying on the same street as you are. Lorette stitched on in silence. When its subject was Dick Woodham, Elsie could safely be left to continue her conversation alone. I oh, I do wish we hadn't quarrelled, Elsie burst out. Why don't you write and tell him so? Lorette asked placidly. Elsie sniffed. It was all his fault, she said. How could anyone be so unreasonable? Let's see. You quarrelled about going to dances, didn't you? Lorette asked. She knew, or the office knew, why Elsie and her sweetheart had quarrelled, but she wanted to get the hat finished while Elsie talked. He was so, so old-fashioned, wailed Elsie, the ready tears rising to her brown eyes, her pretty childish mouth taking on a wistful pucker. You know how I love dancing, and he said that after we were married, of course he wouldn't expect me to go anywhere without him, and he doesn't dance. He said a wife's place was in her home, and a lot of stuffy things like that. And I told him I should expect to go out when I liked, and... And you ended up by having a really first-rate row, said Lorette cheerfully. And we've not made it up yet, agreed Elsie with an extra loud sniff. Lorette rose, and going to the mirror, placed the hat on the shining waves of her chestnut hair. Does it suit me? she asked, crinkling her pretty tip-tilted nose in an endeavour to make sure. Yes, they always do, sighed Elsie vaguely. I wish you'd fall in love, Laurie. Then you'd understand. Thank you, answered Lorette, with the fine scorn of the entirely heart whole. My friend's love affairs give me quite enough diversion at present. A sudden tear dropped onto the skein of cotton that Elsie was still playing with, and in an instant Lorette tossed aside the hat and, her teasing expression yielding to unholy sympathetic, was by Elsie's side. "'Cheer up, you silly baby,' she said softly, slipping an arm around Elsie's shoulders. 
Tell me what it is you want me to do. Elsie swallowed a sob and proceeded hurriedly to explain. You see, I, I thought that if you could only get to know him, you might just hint how awfully wretched I am and say, you know, I'm sorry about the quarrel, really, and, oh, things like that. Hmm, mused Lorette. Quite nice, my dear, except for the fact that I've never seen him. Oh, I'll describe him, exclaimed Elsie. She knew she could do that adequately. And you can get to know people on seaside holidays. I know, I've seen it done, agreed Lorette dryly. But you might remember, I'm a really nice girl. Knowing me gives you quite enough introduction, said Elsie firmly. And oh, Laurie, do try. I'm so unhappy. Lorette crinkled her nose, a habit usual to her when she was dubious over anything. The coming weeks held her one holiday of the year, and for their all too brief days she wanted to lie on the sun-warmed sands and look over the blue waters, to wander on the poppy-blazoned cliffs and forget that there were such things as offices with typewriters that clicked and ledgers that rustled. She wanted to do many things, but making up Elsie's quarrel with Dick Woodham was not one of them, yet essentially kind-hearted. How was she to refuse? Poor Elsie. She was really sorry for her. She had been deeply attached to her sweetheart. Their wedding day had been already on the point of being settled, and she shrewdly suspected that Dick, who she had heard from several sources was wholeheartedly in love with Elsie, and was as unhappy as the girl herself. Each, after the usual manner of quarrelling lovers, was waiting for the other to give way first. Why don't you write to him, Elsie? she asked gently. That would be much the easiest way. My pride won't let me, Elsie sniffed. Besides, it was his fault. Oh, well, said Lorette with more cheerfulness than she was feeling. I'll see what I can do. I'll waylay him in my best hat and a special smile I practice before the glass and I dare say I shall bring the young man to reason. Now, give me a full description of him and his address at Margate. Nothing loath. Elsie launched forth into descriptions so flattering that Lorette decided addresses and all details were superfluous. There could only be one man as handsome as that in any town. And, wound up Elsie, Peggy Mason is down there too, and I know she's in love with him. I don't wonder, murmured Lorette. If he's all you say, she couldn't help it. Elsie wrote down the address. It won't be a boarding house, because he doesn't like them, so you can't make any mistake, she said. But be sure and don't let him guess I told you to do it. You can say someone pointed him out to you. And then, after many more instructions and entreaties, she went. On the morrow, Lorette arrived at her destination with the holiday spirit waxing strong within her. The skies were clear, the sun shone, there was the sea, the glorious sea, blue and flecked with fairy foam. Lorette nearly danced from the station to the boarding house. There was a merry company assembled there, mostly young people intent on making the most of their holiday, and for the next day or two, Lorette enjoyed herself to the full. But her promise to Elsie weighed heavily upon her, and on the fourth day, she took up her stand on the little balcony from which all the other houses in the street could be seen and determined to keep watch on number 10. Yes, she consulted the address Elsie had given her again, it was number 10, until she should be sure of Dick Woodham's presence. 
She had not waited long when, from number 10, strolled a tall, erect, flannel-clad figure, and Lorette, scanning him eagerly through the pair of field glasses she had borrowed for the purpose, promptly identified him. Tall, dark, clean-shaven, mm-hmm, she murmured. That's the lad, of course. His beauty still allows the sun to shine, but I was not unprepared for a slight exaggeration on Elsie's part. Fetching her hat, she was soon out in the street and following her quarry. He was going to stroll on the front, of course. Everyone did in the morning. She walked on, Dick well ahead, trying to find a mode of address and failing utterly. By the time she had tried and rejected all the openings that occurred to her, Dick had seated himself and was opening a book he carried. After some slight hesitation, Lorette found a chair a little distance away and, still seeking the means for the conversation she intended, studied her quarry critically. Yes, she decided suddenly, after all, he was good-looking. His dark hair was crisp and inclined to curl, his features clear-cut, his mouth firm and pleasant. Suddenly, he looked up and their eyes met. Lorette tried to grasp the opportunity and failed utterly, while the man, after a fleeting moment, looked back on the printed page. But his attention seemed to wander, and more than once he found himself studying the girl in the green gown, watching the sun playing in her hair, looking at the pretty mouth, and feeling sure there was a dimple when she smiled. Somehow she made the heroine of his book seem dull, and he felt dull with her. Presently, Lorette, deriding her own shyness, rose to go. It was no use this morning, she knew. But I will tomorrow, she vowed fiercely. I will, whatever I feel like. And then she was conscious Dick had risen too, shutting his book with a bored yawn, and was following her up the parade. But she did not address him the next day, nor the next, nor even the day after that, despite her resolution. Holidaymakers do the same things and go to the same places, and she passed him a dozen times, and with each passing she was uneasily conscious that his glance grew more admiring and his interest more apparent. One does what I stare at him for, of course, she told herself angrily. It had seemed so simple when she had given Elsie that promise, and she had intended to approach him with an elder sister, young man, you're behaving foolishly, kind of attitude. And now, looking at those blue eyes with the twinkle in their depths, that firm mouth curling so pleasantly at the corners, she found it in her heart to wish Elsie and her love affairs elsewhere. On the fourth day, goaded by an imploring epistle from Elsie, she took the plunge. Strolling along the front at an hour too early for the usual crowd of promenaders, she saw Dick in a deck chair. He was without the usual book, and passing, their eyes met. For a moment, Lorette halted. Then she gathered her courage tight in both hands and dropped quickly into a chair next to him. Mr Woodham, I'm a friend of Elsie Foster, she began breathlessly, and then stopped short. How silly it sounded. How unlike the careful speech she had planned. He turned to her and for a moment he hesitated, surprise and something not so easily read in his smile. Then he raised his hat and seeing his smile, somehow Lorette grew more at ease. You could, she felt, explain things to a man who could smile so understandingly. You must forgive my interference, she said, her own eyes beginning to twinkle in company with his. But you see, I'm very fond of Elsie and, and well, 
don't you think this quarrel was very uh, regrettable? Nearly all quarrels are, he agreed gravely. It seemed such a foolish thing to part two people who were, and I expect are, so fond of one another, she went on. He looked out over the waters and sighed, and Lorette, hearing that sigh, grew hopeful, and some of the young man you're behaving foolishly speeches came flowing back to her. Did Elsie tell you about the quarrel? he asked. Yes, she can't think of anything else just now. I believe you think once a girl is married, she ought to stay in her home and not go anywhere, nor have any amusements you didn't share. Those are my ideas, he said firmly. But don't you think a girl would get dull if she gave up all her amusements just because she was married? And a man wouldn't like a dull wife, would he? No, mused her companion. But I should sort of hope my company would keep her from it. There must be endless give and take in matrimony, argued Lorette, with the bland inexperience of those who've never tried it. But anyhow, I know Elsie is very lonely. So am I, he said. At this admission, Lorette felt the comfortable glow of the well-doer. She was going to succeed in her mission and the rest was easy. She went on to talk of Elsie, but her companion revealed to her that he had views of his own and knew how to express them in a manner both interesting and forcible. One argument led to another and they were still talking when the chime of a church clock told Lorette the lunch hour was upon her. With a gesture of dismay, she sprang to her feet. I had no idea it was so late, she exclaimed. But you do understand why I spoke up, don't you? And I can hope that you and Elsie will make it up? He rubbed his chin meditatively. I must say, you give me new points of view, he admitted. But I'm an obstinate fellow, and I don't know yet that Elsie was altogether right. I should think it very kind of you if you would walk out to Westgate this afternoon with me and tell me more of her ideas. You may put them more impartially than she would. Lorette hesitated, but not for long. Hadn't she promised Elsie to do her best? And she believed in seeing things through. Very well, she said. I'll come. I'll do anything for Elsie. He frowned and laughed suddenly. Thanks, he said. I'll try not to make my company too severe a test of your friendship. They walked to Westgate beside the cliffs, and though Lorette started to explain more of Elsie's views, her companion lured her skilfully off the topic and onto others he seemed to find more interesting. And when at length they parted, at an hour considerably past the one Lorette had contemplated, she was left with the uneasy conviction that as a special pleader she had not been altogether a success. She crinkled up her nose in puzzled thought. How was it she had come to talk of so many other things besides Elsie, who, she decided suddenly, was a little fool to quarrel with a man like that? And she checked herself sharply, colouring all over her small, vivid face. What did it matter to her what kind of a man he was? She was Elsie's friend, not his. Almost she regretted she had promised to go for a row with him tomorrow. Still, she told herself that this would be the last time. Tomorrow, he would talk of nothing but Elsie. And then, well, she'd done her best. If they didn't make it up, it was not her fault. 
Out on the sunny water, she did her best to keep her resolution and talked only of Elsie and the amazing luck of the man who could make her his wife. But her companion showed so little interest in the subject that presently she lapsed into silence and lay back in the boat and watched Dick sending it through the water with long, easy strokes. Elsie was a little fool. Are you doing anything this afternoon? he asked as he handed her out of the boat, holding her hand rather longer than was at all necessary. For a moment she hesitated, but only for a moment. Disloyalty was not in her nature. Yes, she said firmly. I'm afraid I'm booked pretty well all the rest of my holiday. Thanks so much for the sale. You will make it up with Elsie, won't you? He looked long at her. Yes, he said at last. I'll make it up if she wants me to. Then she had healed the breach, Lorette told herself as she went indoors. She was delighted. She told herself so many times in order that she might be quite convinced. He would write to Elsie at once. Perhaps he might even go up to see her that very day. She probably wouldn't see him again. But here she was wrong, for she saw him the very next morning when he waylaid her as he was going down to the front. Elsie had been written to, he assured her, and wouldn't she walk out to Kingsgate with him? And secure in the knowledge of the letter to Elsie, Lorette went. The next day, and the next, and the one after that, she spent in the same company. Spent them too in a happiness hitherto unknown, a happiness she did not dare to define. And still, Elsie did not write her the joyful letter of gratitude she fully expected. Odd, she thought. Very odd. For in answer to her questionings, Dick assured her that Elsie was aware of his unchanged feelings towards her, and Lorette, whose instinct in such matters was unusually sure, believed him and did not make the determined efforts to avoid him she would otherwise have done. After a week, a week spent almost entirely in the company of her friend's sweetheart, Lorette rose very early one morning and stole out of the house and up onto the deserted cliffs, cool and sweet in the keen air, from which the opaline mists were clearing before the coming sun, and here, seated on an upturned boulder, she faced the situation. You're not playing fair, she told herself, clutching her slim hands, tanned pale gold with the sun and sea winds, and you know it. There was only one thing for her now, she thought. Since she could not be with Elsie's sweetheart and remain loyal to her friend in thought as well as word, there was nothing left for her but flight, and that at once. Why, oh, why had she consented to meddle in Elsie's love affair? Elsie's that had so nearly become her own. She sat long, looking seaward and bracing herself for renunciation. And when at last she rose and went down towards the town, it was with the firm resolution to catch that 2.20 train the same day. It meant losing a week of her holiday, but anything, anything was better than disloyalty to Elsie. It was long past her usual time for appearing when she reached the boarding house, only to find Dick Woodham waiting at the entrance. Good morning, she said, and would have passed him, but he blocked her way. I've been waiting such a long time for you, he said reproachfully. You didn't tell me you were going out so early. I am sorry you waited, she answered, in a voice she strove to render expressionless and cold. 
something has happened that makes it necessary for me to go back to town today. He looked straight at her, a long, intent look that Lorette forced herself to meet without flinching. He must never guess. Never. She would rather die. What train are you catching? He asked suddenly. Ah, he said when she told him. What a pity. Elsie is coming down today by the 3.15. I heard this morning I did hope you would come with me to meet her. Couldn't you possibly stay till tomorrow? Lorette caught her breath sharply. So Elsie was coming down. She needn't go, she told herself with a bitter little smile. It was all quite safe. Elsie was coming down to her fiancé today. Do stay, he urged. I counted on you coming to meet her after all you've done for us. Lorette came to a swift decision. She had better stay, lest even a dim suspicion of her reason for going should come to him. Just now there had been a look in his eyes that sent the blood rushing to her heart. Oh yes, she said gaily, I must certainly stay and congratulate you on your reunion. That's right, he said. I'll call for you this afternoon then. She nodded and left him, humming a gay little tune as she entered the house. They set out in good time to meet the train, Lorette laughing and talking in a gayer mood than her companion had seen her. Only to herself did it seem that the way to the station was paved with thorns, the sun hidden, the very brilliance of the sea, the gay crowds on the beach, a mockery. She must go tonight, she told herself. Whatever anyone might think, she must go tonight. The station was reached at last, and as the train came in, Lorette braced herself for the final effort. She must watch the meeting with a gratified smile and speak the words she knew would be expected of her. There they are, Dick said quickly, and even as he spoke she saw Elsie coming towards her, a tall dark man at her side. Why, she was beginning, when Elsie saw her and rushed up, greeting her warmly. Oh, Laurie, she cried, how can I ever thank you? I know it was all you're doing, though I don't know yet how you managed it, and... And this is Dick, she concluded, pulling her companion forward. Dick, she said, this is Lorette, who helped us to make it up. The dark young man put out his hand, and taking the one the bewildered Lorette extended, pressed it warmly. It was awfully good of you to bother, he said. Alec has told me all about you. Here, he turned to Lorette's escort and smote him on the back. Hello, old chap, he added. You see, you're going to be my best men after all. The other laughed and pushed him gently forward. Go on, he said. You and Miss Foster can walk up alone. We would not spoil sport for the world, would we, Miss Wayne? And before the astonished Lorette could reply, he had taken her arm and was piloting her out of the station and onto a quiet seat on the front. Who are you? she demanded when she could find words. Alec Trevor, Dick Woodham's chum, he answered. Why didn't you tell me you weren't Dick Woodham? She demanded. You never asked me, he smiled. She tried to frown and he explained. You see, he said, if I had told you at first, you wouldn't have gone on talking to me and I wanted to know you more than I've ever wanted anything. I noticed you the very first day you came and, and after, well, I just waited until Dick could come down and you could see him. Why wasn't it him? Lorette asked vaguely. 
we changed holidays at the last minute. He had arranged his, rooms and all, and then when he quarrelled with Elsie, he felt too hip to come, so I came instead. Are you really sorry I did? He asked softly. You said Elsie had been written to, she answered, looking away. So she had, he told her. Every night after I left you, I used to sit down and write all your arguments to Dick, pointing out to him all you'd pointed out to me. And you see, it worked, for between us we healed the breach. You talked to Dick by proxy. You were a loyal friend, but oh, how sick I did get on the virtues of Elsie. I never thought so perfect a person existed. No man would be good enough for her. There was a long silence. Lorette looked out over a sea grown suddenly radiant. The sun overhead seemed to shine down into her very heart, warming it to life again. Don't you think you could possibly forgive me? He asked at length. I'll try, she murmured. Under cover of the paper he carried, his hand reached out and sought hers. But, he whispered, I promise I'll let my wife go to dances without me if she wants to. Lorette shot him a lightning glance. I don't think she'd want to, she whispered. And truly enough, she didn't. Reading Between the Lines is proud to be sponsored by Friendship Society, The Oddfellows. If you've ever wondered what being a member of The Oddfellows means, we're delighted to be able to share some first-hand answers. Um, hello, uh, my name is Stephanie and I come from Warwickshire. I had only just joined The Oddfellows as the pandemic for Covid began. I only have one lung anyway. And sadly, even though I obeyed all the restrictions as a um, vulnerable person, I still caught it. And I was really, really ill. And belonging to the Odd Fellows quite literally saved my life. They became the reason for me to get out of bed each day because they had lovely. Um, coffee morning chats, they had quizzes and they had presentations and speakers would talk to us about all different things and I started to feel better. They gave me that feeling that I would get over this and I could do anything with the odd fellows at my side and to anyone who isn't a member please join. If you've recently retired and need inspiration to find a new routine, take a look at what your local Oddfellows friendship group has to offer. The Oddfellows want to help you make the most out of your retirement with social events, group holidays, volunteering opportunities and well-being support. To find out more about their retirement support, give them a call today on 0800 028 1810 or visit oddfellows.co.uk. It's time to start a new chapter of your life. Now, let's get back to the story. Let me top up my coffee, grab some of my friends, and we'll have that little chat about it. (laughs) 
That was Love's Ambassador, fantastically read by Marion, who also joins us today. Hello, Marion. Hello. Also on our, on our Wii panel is Lisa from the Features team. Hello, Lisa. Hello. And David from the DC Thompson Archives. Hello, David. Hiya. Um, now, I'm going to give the game away early and say that this is one of my top favourites that I picked out from the archives, but I've not, this is one of the only episodes I've not heard people's in, first impressions in passing yet, because usually we get like a sneaky comment in before we start recording. So I'm curious, I don't know what people's impressions are, so I'm curious what everyone's immediate impressions are in a word, one word, Marion. Fun. Fun, yeah. <laughs> Lisa? Lighthearted. David? One word. One word. One word. Um, Maybe a hyphenated word if you're meh. lucky. <laughs> <laughs> meh, really? Actually, no, it's not quite meh, but it's just like it, it didn't yeah, it didn't grab me. Fair. And I figured it out on the, in so the first is, few minutes. This is interesting. I was going to ask. Um, I also would say thought fun. I thought this was really fun. It felt really cheeky. And I was going to say, I genuinely didn't see the plot twist coming. I saw something coming, but not what it actually was. So do you think it was predictable or was it quite, is it just me? <laughs> no, I thought, I thought it was predictable, but I thought it was, I liked it despite nice that. Yeah. yeah. What did, you, did you find it predictable, Lisa? I didn't actually uh, know the twist was coming either. Um, so I kind of agree with you. Yeah. I think, I was like, it has to be something. It can't be that he's just so willing to sort of cheat on his missus, basically, by flirting with Laurie. So I was like, I know there's going to be something, but I didn't know how it would all come together and the fact that he did actually know Dick and was talking to him and everything. No, it did. Um, I think maybe it's just we've read so many of these stories now. I mean, we kind of, we, we look for the, we're looking for it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there, there, there was just some hints. I, I wasn't sure. I thought I knew what the plot twist was. And that it was a mistaken identity issue, uh -huh. and he was playing along with it. And then there was there was times where I wasn't quite sure. And then no, no, it's definitely it's yeah. And then it didn't feel people's friend otherwise. Of you know, course. especially when she's kind of like she's having her doubts, like oh my god, I might actually love him as well. I was like oh, it's like mistaken. It's like no, no, people's friend wouldn't do that. It's just like yeah, they wouldn't have her nicking her friend's boyfriend <laughs> no and, and actually none of the other dc thompson publications on the period would have done that either i don't think it's just not a dc thompson thing <laughs> no it's exactly that it was predictable because you know where it's been published rather than because it's a predictable story it's because we know the pattern of of how these things go yeah i'm and not even hit sure the nail on the head yeah there. i'm not even sure that mills and boone would have done a a, a steal you know <laughs> like that but as always, I think it's not, you, you always know where it's kind of going to end up, but it's about the journey. <laughs> and I thought this was quite a fun way of getting to it. I didn't think it was, from from what I've seen in the archive so far, I thought it was a little bit different. Um, the tagline on the story is, how a girl made up a lover's quarrel to her advantage. Um, and the illustration is of her approaching him on the beach and it's quite a, yeah, I just I also really like the setting of it being in Margate and it's all by the seaside. It was one of the rare occurrences because in, in the studio we have an accompaniment of seagulls in the background of everything that we usually try and minimize or edit out. And it was one of the one of the rare in the recordings we were kinda of like, we could just leave the seagulls. It adds to the ambience <laughs> of them being at the seaside. <laughs> I thought the characters had 
really strong personalities that came through, especially Laurette or Laurie, as I think she's lovingly called. And I think Alec, who it turns out to be, is one of the only love interests I've seen that I actually like. Like, I actually found him quite like, ooh, he's a nice love interest. (laughs) (laughs) So what did you think of the characters and the characterizations? She's quite a modern girl, isn't she? She seems quite independent and Mm -hmm. independent-minded. Yeah. And she's not... She's not sloppy and slushy like her pal. <laughs> it was the the line about um, my friends' love affairs give me quite enough diversion at present, and it's just we're speaking before we started recording about how it's the language is very much of its day, and I quite like that about it. It's not a criticism; I just quite like that. It's just you can very much like when you hear a line like that, you know mm-hmm. roughly when the story's set. But also I find with that, that's a red flag to me. It's like, oh no, she's going to end up hitched. (laughs) (laughs) You know, she's not coming out of this single. That's very true. Although, because it's not the typical, they just get married at the end. It only very slightly hints at it. So I quite liked that about it. I didn't like that bit of the ending. Oh, I did. No, it was all a bit convenient. It's all a bit like, oh yeah, okay. It's like, hold on, you've just outwardly lied to this person. Um, and been dis- deliberately deceptive about who you are. You've done this reveal in an awkward situation, and within five minutes, you've kind of agreed to marry. And I, I don't but, know. I felt uh, I'd be angry. I'd be mm. kind of livid. It's like, hold on, you just lied to me for t- four days or however long it is. You know. But that's what I quite like because I don't think she did. Like it doesn't say that she forgives him. She's just like, mm, I'll try. And, it, and, you know, it kind of hints that she will get there eventually, but she's not immediately let him off the hook and she's not immediately said, yes, I'll marry you, because that's how they always end. It's, yes, I'll marry you, whereas this is just kind of like hinting that down the road they might end up there. And I quite like that because, like we say, Laura as a character is quite fierce, quite modern, and she wouldn't have fallen at his feet and gone all soppy. And I quite liked that. And I really liked his line, I promise my wife can go to dances whenever she wants to, which... Saying it now, I'm like, that shouldn't be that impressive. <laughs> like, it but in the that, context no. of the story, it is. I completely misread that line when I was reading this through myself, myself again. And it's like, hold on, is he saying he's already married and he's letting her go to the dances so he can meet up with her? And it's like, no, David, do not think like that. <laughs> it's, like, <laughs> it's the fact that, I mean, she, the thing that got me about Lorette is all the way through, she's very, she's got a very solid moral core. Mm-hmm. And she knows what she feels that she wants and um, that she's independent and everything. Um, And then she starts to get flustered that she might be accidentally cheating or, you know, falling in love with her best friend's fella and everything. Um, But uh, she says something about, oh, you know, I'm I'm a good girl or something. What was it she said? Very Eliza Doolittle line, yeah, wasn't it's it? Like, it was almost, girl. I'm a good girl, I am. Yeah, it's like, I don't just speak to people in the kind of the street because yeah. I've seen what happens on holidays. <laughs> <laughs> this is well before 1840, Club 1830. <laughs> but, um, uh, so she, she, she's obviously got this sense of proprietary. Uh-huh. And then at the end, it's like, there's a bit where he goes like, under cover of the paper, he carried his hand and reached, uh, <laughs> reached out and saw hers. It's like, oh, they're doing this discreetly. It's just like, <laughs> I just thought, oh, it's, oh she, she's letting her guard down. <laughs> yeah I really I really liked Laura I thought she was really witty she had like a bit of a sense of humor um and it was just really fun I love that they obviously spent 
maybe my I feel like saying this out loud now I'm like you know what I think my standards have just been really low for how relationships <laughs> go in these stories because I'm like I like that they actually spoke and got to know each other <laughs> and he cared about her opinions on things which you know is Maybe the, the bare minimum. <laughs> <laughs> Quite often in the people's friend stories, that doesn't seem to happen. No, it's exactly. just like, it's a given. <laughs> um, I only feel sorry for Elsie because Dick sounds like a bore. He's <laughs> awful. He yeah. yeah, I wasn't impressed with him at all. Maybe he has a redemption moment from all these letters that have been sent to him, you know, and he kind of suddenly realises, oh, maybe the error of his ways. Yeah, Alex is pulling him up being like, come on, get with him, mate. <laughs> <laughs> well he was at the same yeah, opinion Alec wasn't was he he yeah. converted well I thought he was just pretending to be Dick like he was just he knew that that's what Dick is, Dick's opinions were so he was like hmm yes I am very strict on these things and actually he's not he's a bit more I'm just building I think I fancy Alec a wee bit <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I'm just building this picture in my head because that first conversation they had she was actually trying to persuade him yeah well I read it differently okay <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I love the comment actually all the way through this story there's some really kind of lovely turns of phrases and um, kind of insight so when she's, she mentions about um, that he's not as good looking as Elsie made him out to be that was a bit of a red flag to me so like hold on it's a mistaken identity the fact yeah. that she, like, it didn't give him like a photo well you wouldn't have given a photograph to kind of like this mm-hmm. is what it looks like go find him <laughs> <laughs> um, that got me and the other thing in that early kind of part of the story which she's taken her field glasses so she could spy on him <laughs> wow you get arrested for that now <laughs> i just yeah if if just about this poor guy just like who's this woman who keeps like staring at me <laughs> like, what was your what was your favorite parts of it lisa did you have like a standout moment i think like even although it, is, it turns out to be um, more predictable than I'd first anticipated, I think that the bit with the the twist was was quite good. But it's just the fact that he was so deceitful, um, and she still kind of ends up with him. And is there a Jane Austen novel where somebody pretends to be someone then they're not in order to? Oh, am I thinking Thomas Hardy or something? I don't, it, it's ringing a bell, but maybe it's just one of those kind of literary sure. tropes that kind of gets punted out occasionally. It is definitely- I want to say Emma, but. I might be completely well, wrong there. In Pride and Prejudice, isn't Mr. Wickham, there's the, the whole Mr. Darcy, Mr. Wickham, and it's kind of like the roles are reversed in some way because Mr. Darcy, Elizabeth doesn't like him to start, and then it's like he's been accused of all this stuff, but it's actually Mr. Wickham who's the villain. I don't know if I'm articulating that properly, but... I've not read any of them, so I can't weird into this i'm not sure but it definitely is a trope like it's a con like the whole mistaken identity or mixed up like even now in sort of like young adult books and stuff it's quite common Maybe well, that's we why start I with like shakespeare so couldn't we like, true. Yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> but yeah one thing to say is in spite of the fact that he was deceitful and he could have basically said from the start I'm not who you think I am. And by the way, they could have resolved this this whole thing with him like revealing who he was. That's that's never been an issue. But I suppose if he had like kind of been honest, there just wouldn't have been a story. I was to about to say it's like, yeah, of course it makes more sense if it had just said, Oh no, I'm Dick's mate, but let's let's sort this out. We'll both write letters or whatever. But then, you know, it wouldn't have, it wouldn't have been a story. <laughs> so <laughs> 
It, it does take some sort of suspension of yes. belief mm-hmm. here. Yes. You've got to accept it on its own terms. And on its own terms, it's quite a fun story, but I'm kind of with you, Lisa. If you start to think about it... Mm-hmm. It immediately unravels. It just falls apart. And you think, yeah, why would she want to be with somebody who has lied to her for the past week? <laughs> <laughs> But it is ultimately a romantic thing, isn't it? Yeah. It's that kind of like idealised, oh my God, it, it all turned out all fine and he's lovely and oh, he just did it to get to know me better, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> blah, 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 romance, blah, blah. blah, blah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it's that is a far-fetched that he'd keep a secret who he is for that long and it's quite an elaborate and unnecessary lie. And I think if, if Alex was on this panel, one of the things he never likes is when it's just like convenient it's like the plot doesn't actually make sense. It's just for convenience. So, and there's a tiny hint of that. But I still really enjoyed it. Mm. I looked through it and I was just trying to think, when I looked through it for a second time, he doesn't actually lie to her at any time. He just admits the lie truth. Lie by omission, mm. yeah. And I think the, way, the only lie, he says, um, that I could see was when um, she asks him, um, what was it, uh, that she's booked up for the week, um, so thanks for the sale, but you will make it up with Elsie, won't you? And he goes, yes, he said at last, I'll make it up. I'll, I'll make it up if she wants me to. And that's the only outright lie that I could see in the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Everything else is kind of like, you just, you're led to read it in a different way. And, and which is quite clever writing. When they get off the train and he says, oh, we want to thank you for all you've done for dash us because he's about to say all you've done for like them and he's like uh us i mean because it's like so there is like time where he he uses the pronoun to pretend that he's well yeah we can kind of i mean being a politician here i expect (laughs) but you can kind of say that he's even speaking the truth there because when he says us he could be speaking about them as a broader friendship group. Yeah. As a four. All four of us. Yes. Like, I would never have got to know you had it mm-hmm. not been for this situation. And and even with the making things up with Elsie, it says, well, he is kind of making things up with Elsie because he's the instrument of mm-hmm. going to Dick, who's going to make things up with Elsie. So it's all going to work out in the end. So... He's you know. innocent, Your Honour. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, you're really in love with him, aren't you? <laughs> oh, no. What is this? You're blushing. I nearly trained as a lawyer in another life. So. <laughs> <laughs> you'd, have, you'd have been a good lawyer. Really. <laughs> um, what do we know about the author? This is quite funny. Um, I know we have another story from Ida May later in the season because I accidentally picked her out of a different decade without realising which I've done twice this season um, so we do know that her career spanned at least 10 years with a friend because this is 1920 and the other story in the season is 1930 so do we know anything else? No No? No all, I can, all I've been able to find out is that she seems to have been writing for the friend between about 8 uh, sorry 1918 and about 1931 that's quite a while she's only writing short stories so she wasn't she's not in any of the serial indexes so she's not doing kind of like the annie s1 style go on for eight nine ten twenty five weeks um or whatever it is Mm -hmm. um 
So now I've not found out anything else about that. I think it's a pseudonym. I don't think it's actually somebody called Ida May. It's quite a cool name. Yeah. It's a good, it's a good name. Yeah, it does sound like he should have like Brown at the end of it or Smith or, you know, <laughs> something like that. I don't know if anybody else has found out anything else because I've got something else that I've got a theory. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. Don't keep us in suspense. No, all right, okay. <laughs> I, I, I'm querying whether this is actually a male writer. Oh. And also whether it might be a pseudonym of David Pay, who was the editor at the time. Stop mm. it. I couldn't dun, dun, find dun, dun, anything to do this because David Pay did have a couple of other pseudonyms. He was writing under Ian Farkson. Uh, oh, sorry, Ian Farquhar for um, the kind of some of the kind of the children's type stories that he wrote independently, which did appear in The People's Friend. He was editor up until 1938, when, oh, yeah, 38, when he died. Um, and it's, it, I don't know, I'd, I'd need when to go and do a look. being editor? 1900. So he had a best part of 40 years as editor, and his dad had been the second editor of The People's Friend. Oh, my God. Ida May, David Peer, that's hilarious. Yes, I was just going to say it rhymes. I, I'm obsessed <laughs> I don't know. With I, I don't know. Conspiracy it's just, theory hats are on. It was one of those kind of thoughts I had. It's like, you know, like, one of those kind of shower thoughts in the morning when you go like, oh, hold on a second. This is something, Something's ringing about. I don't know. I'd have to go and speak to some people. And I'm making it I can't You could find probably do a linguistic analysis on the stuff. Yeah, I mean, I've not read any of these other stuff to see technical. what it's like, but that's oh that's just a. Th- it's an mm. out there theory, but it may or may not be. It's probably complete hokum, and I'm completely wrong, and I've probably just kind of. There's somebody out there who knows Ida May, and he's kind of screaming at the kind of their <laughs> transistor radio as we see it. This goes out. <laughs> that's. Do you. Reading it, do you think it could be written? by a man or is there things in it that you're like no this is definitely a woman if it's written by a man it's it's written by a man who likes women in the best sense yeah because he's made lorette very modern a decent modern independent woman and i don't know if it's true or not but i think of men who are writing at the time or just before if you think of like Dickens, for example, and Dickens' women. Uh-huh. They're not modern, independent women. No. Hmm. I'm looking at this in entirely new... I need to go re-read, it, re-read this entire thing to be like, <laughs> do I think this is a, a man or a woman? What do you think, Lisa? Do you, do you have any... Do, do you think there's anything that jumps out at you that makes you think one way or another? I don't know in particular. I mean, I kind of am sometimes guilty of just seeing the name and taking it at face value. Yeah. Um, but obviously they're pen names I mean not obviously we have pen names today um so I, I don't know I, I, I just assumed it was a female writer nothing leapt out at me sorry that I'm actually just stopped the episode <laughs> <laughs> I'm just reading it I, say, it's just, it's, it, I could be completely barking That's up the wrong so tree here fun, though. I'd love it if it was but so- it's a great theory I don't he would know. He would. He Somebody's, would know his I, audience. I'm taking this David Pay thing as far as I can take it. <laughs> I can really start to push up against a wall now. But whether he's being nagged by his um, other halves, like you need to write more sympathetic, you know. Well, perhaps know. they wrote it together. Could be. Perhaps that's why they didn't use the same. May, yeah, know. perhaps that's why they didn't use the same pen name as the Pickle Tillam pen. Name. Growing arms and legs. This yeah. Because <laughs> you know he would know the readers. He would. He would know. What, what women want which is <laughs> the Mel Gibson film 
<laughs> no, I think he wouldn't, yeah, he would understand readers, he would understand, like, actual good female characters and stuff. Because that's the only, this sounds quite bad, but that's the only thing that puts me off, is, like, the women are just too believable <laughs> as, like, good, like, decently written women that makes me think, no way a man can do that. <laughs> Which is entirely unfair, because they definitely can. Yeah, as I say, for legal reasons, I have no proof yeah. of anything. This is purely David theory. <laughs> we're, we're, this is a double David theory. Pure <laughs> speculation, but it's fun and I like it. <laughs> but maybe listen to it again with that kind of thought in your head and see if it, it sounds different. Thus putting, our fi- <laughs> thus putting our figures up by a yeah. double. <laughs> <laughs> yes, go, go listen to the episode again and, then, and let us know what you think. Maybe that's why I fancy Alex so much, because he's <laughs> written by a man. <laughs> oh, mental. Love it. Well, I'm I'm rolling with that theory. It's it's true in my head anyway. And that's I all need that to get really in touch matters. With Charlotte, but it's probably a bit late for Charlotte's kind of area of expertise. <laughs> oh I'm really liking this theory. Because <laughs> you'll go, no, no, it's just, it's, her name was Gladys, she lived in Broughty Ferry. Yeah. <laughs> 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 well, my head is already buzzing with next lines of investigation. Yeah. Oh. I, I couldn't, uh, the other thing is that I couldn't find Ida May writing for any other magazines or any other titles or any other newspapers uh-huh. for short stories. And that obviously seems to be their area. But this could be Ida May is what they wrote for, for people's friend. Mm. And she could have been, could be writing under a different name for a different paper or wherever yeah. they're submitting to. Yeah. It'll be interesting when we read the next Ida May story. So listeners look out for that later in the season. If if there's any more hints in that story as to whether we think it's a man or not. Because I'm I'm running with it. <laughs> so yeah, when we when we um when that episode comes out, you'll have to listen and see what we think of that and if anything jumps out at us. But moving on from our mad <laughs> David Pay Ida May theories. Um, how would we adapt this for the friend today? Would much need done to it? Um, we don't have our usual sort of fiction rep, but we all know the magazine itself. So, Marion, what do you think? Do you, what do you think we would do? I don't think there's a huge amount we'd need no, to change. I've put. I don't think it would need changed much. Well, obviously, I was quite a big fan. <laughs> well, quite. <laughs> You know, it's a pleasant enough story. Um, what about you, Lisa? Did you have... No, I, I just agree with Marion. I mean, even, like, although it was a, 1920, I think it was. Yeah. Um, but it's just, the you know, the way she kind of refers to, like, getting away from the office and all that kind of thing. Even that, although it goes back all that time, it's still kind of fairly modern. So from that point of view, it's um, I, I just basically echoing what Marion's mm-hmm. just said as well. Because even if, I think if it was to be done today, you would still set it in that period. So it'd still be kind of believable that there'd yeah. be a man there being like, no, you can't go to dances without without yes. me. <laughs> <laughs> and and they shut it down in the story, which, you know, might they might not have done at the time. So, no, I, w- I also think we would, well, keep it the same, but then I'm not on the fiction team. So <laughs> I'm just like, I want this as a novel. I want... <laughs> I really, yeah, I really enjoyed this one. We'll just go on to our ratings out of five stars. And I will start with David. Hmm. Is it, yeah, that's very much echoing I don't know. I mean, I was a bit, yeah, about the whole thing. I mean, I think it's a, I think, think, David's like, where'd that F come from? Um, It's like, 
It's a well-written story. It's well-crafted. It's put together well. And the characters, certainly the... Um, Loretta has got... Uh, is it Loretta? Yeah, yeah. well, Lorette. Lorette, sorry. Lorette. Um, she seems like she's a solid, a really solid character and well-formed to me. And on that, I'll, I'll, I'll give it four. I would probably have given it a three if she hadn't been quite so well-written. Mm-hmm. But that's just because I, 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 I guessed the twist. Yeah, fair. I'm going to give it a five, surprising no one. <laughs> um, just, do you know what? Like, because when I first picked it out of the archive and I wrote little notes, I read Lord stories and I wrote little notes in them and then I went back and picked up my favourites and this had like a little star and a heart next to it. And I feel like it wasn't like, I enjoyed it, but not this much. It's only when I've gone and reread it for like prepping for the episodes and stuff that I've been like, it's really grown on me. I don't know why, but yeah, it was just, it's really fun. I like the characters. I think it's surprisingly modern for 19, especially 1920s, because some of those ones are like, mm-hmm. um, yeah, not great. Or like, you get a hint of these like fierce modern characters, but it was like, they immediately bat it down and she goes back to being like a little wife or whatever, where I don't think that happens in this one. So... Yes, five stars. Lisa, what do you think? I think four. Um, I agree that the characters are strong, um, especially Lorette. Um, I kind of disagree on the, like, I, I think the, the fact that she kind of just so suddenly is ready to forgive his deceit and stuff. I just, that doesn't sit that well mm-hmm. with me. Um, that's a typical, that's a typical kind of people's friend, wrap it up quickly. <laughs> Um, yeah, short yeah, story yes. yeah. it's like you've had your 5,000 words come on shut up <laughs> <laughs> it's time to get married now <laughs> skip to the good bit <laughs> yeah yeah so yeah well written um but I just didn't particularly agree with it but then different people you know different strokes different folks and all mm. that kind of thing um so four okay yeah I'll give it a good solid four nicely crafted I liked Laurie little bit predictable, but, you know, it's a people's friend story in the 1920s. But, uh, yeah. It's a good bit of escapism. It is. Totally. Nice holiday summer reading. You go to the beach, you get a nice, you know, yeah. <laughs> Sorry. You get the seagulls. <laughs> I was going to start talking about Alec again, but I was like, no. <laughs> I'm not who doing would, this. Who would you cast as Alec in oh, this story? That is such a good question. Bear in mind that he has to be not quite as good looking as Dick. A D- Dick would be like a classically Hollywood, you know, like your Leo DiCaprio type of th- like people that f- people who find him classically handsome. Um, I mean, Henry Cavill is my favorite. <laughs> <laughs> I would just cast Henry Cavill in everything. <laughs> um, I don't know. Does anyone spring to mind? For you. <laughs> no, I just wondered because you'd obviously thought about him so much. I, I wondered clearly. if you had a picture in your head of no, him. No, because I, you know, we were talking on social media recently about aphantasia where you can't picture things in your mind. And I'm not like, I'm not that bad, but I don't picture faces and stuff right. like that. It's, it's very, very hazy. It's just like rough shape. So I never get clear details like that. So I find, I do find it, I usually find it more helpful when you've seen a picture first uh-huh. and then I just picture them. Um, I'm not very good at coming up with ones. That was a bit of a tangent, sorry. No, <laughs> no that's interesting. Because no, in my head, he's he's got to be someone good-looking but bland. 
Yeah, I know. I think then, I think he's he's more attractive than Dick, just in a in a in a more yeah. normal. No, Dick way. would be kind of good looking and bland, and therefore you yeah. your kind of your Alec would be someone who's maybe support, best supporting actor kind yeah. of kind yeah. of ter- territory, the, yeah. but more fun and la- and like you can have more of a laugh with them is less. Yeah, serious maybe Sam Rockwell or someone like that. You know that yeah. kind of. This is going to be a wider discussion when this episode. No, <laughs> it's, over, it's over that. It's like the next season is going to be like the last thing is, is like the, the, the round is like who will play them in the film? Quite, it's quite like, <laughs> a funny question. I quite like that. But um, there is all the the aspect of beauty is in the eye of the beholder as well. Uh-huh. You know, mm. so what somebody um, thinks is really attractive, the next person might not agree and. Um, I don't know. But it's funny that you mentioned Henry Cavill because I didn't specifically think of him, but very like him. Yeah. I kind of visualise someone like him. Dark hair, side parting. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just away with it. Like, <laughs> <laughs> We've lost her. Bring it back. <laughs> Earth to Jackie. <laughs> right. I'm going to wrap it up there before we like totally go off on one. <laughs> So, thank you, Marion, for reading the story for us, and Lisa and David for joining us, and to you for listening. All that's left for me to say is until this week, group of friends gets together again for another story from the friend to you, Cheerio. Thanks again for joining us for this episode of Reading Between the Lines. Follow on your podcast app today so you don't miss out on our next story and check our previous episodes for more from the Friend Archives. We would be delighted if you were to recommend this podcast to your friends. If you don't already get the People's Friend magazine delivered, because you listen to Reading Between the Lines, you have an exclusive offer to subscribe to get your first 13 issues for just £6. Check the episode notes for details and terms. And for more from The People's Friend, visit thepeoplesfriend.co.uk, subscribe to our newsletter, or find us on Facebook and Twitter. Hasty back! There's a dainty little journal that is read both far and near. It has had a host of rivals, still it stands without a peer. It is bright and entertaining from the first page to the end, and is known to its admirers as the dear old people's friend. A charming little journal is the friend. Of good things it is such a happy blend That to read it at your leisure Is a pleasure without measure The friend to friends in trouble recommend They won't be happy till they get the friend